You should be shocked in Numbers 14. The Israelites are ready to reverse the exodus. It seems unthinkable. That is their desire. At the beginning of the chapter, they had said, let's choose a leader who's going to take us back to Egypt. For surely he has brought us out of Egypt into this wilderness to die by the sword. We're going to hear today a divine pronouncement about an unbelieving people. This event in Numbers 14 is where the term wilderness generation comes from. This pronouncement about them is it's not regarding an ancient Near Eastern army. It's not a pronouncement about an inhabiting Canaanite group in the land. It's about the Israelites. It's going to refer to them in ways that will show their unbelief and wickedness. They're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years in what will follow. They will die out. And the children that they feared would become a prey in the land will grow up during those 40 years to inherit the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where are these Israelites at the moment? In Numbers 13 and 14, in the moment of Numbers 14, they are encamped at a place called Kadesh. This is the wilderness rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. It's near the southern border of the promised land. The Lord has led them that far. The setup to the passage this morning is what we covered last week in Numbers 13. Moses sends 12 spies into the land. They're going to spy it out and return with a report about its fruitfulness and about its inhabitants. And they confirm, these spies do, that indeed the land was fruitful and flourishing with life and blessing. But the majority of the spies were concerned about going into the land. These inhabitants, they said, are too mighty. They're not just mighty, they're too mighty. And they're not just tall, they're too tall. They're not just great, they're too great. Their fortresses are not just imposing, they're impenetrable. We can't take the land. Even though one of those 12 spies named Caleb said in chapter 13, 30, let's go up at once and occupy the land for we are well able to overcome it. His faith was not shared by the majority of the spies. And in chapter 14, 2, rebellious activity began to take place, grumbling against Moses, a call for a new leader. Can you imagine a reversal of the Exodus? This is what they want. The Exodus has undone their bondage in Egypt. It's their wonder of redemption that they were guided through and by to a wilderness at Sinai and then toward a promised land, and they would rather it reverse. After all they've seen, after all they've been through, they've been out of Egypt for over a year now. And they're ready to return because Egypt is more appealing to them than a promised land consisting of many warriors. Moses intercedes for the people Immediate judgment will not fall on them now. Moses prays God would spare them. And he said in verse 19, please pardon the iniquity of this people. According to the greatness of your steadfast love. And we look today at the Lord's response. In verses 20 to 25, here is God's pronouncement about the land and his response to Moses' prayer. God says in verse 20, I have pardoned according to your word. He's answered Moses' prayer. I have pardoned 
does not mean there will not be consequences for their sin. In fact, the pardon seems to have in view what the following verses will unpack. They will not die immediately under some sort of striking judgment of God. And and therefore, what God had warned that he would do, he will answer the prayer of Moses and he will not execute a widespread and immediate divine judgment. They are spared according to Moses' word. And in verse 21, God is going to ground or base the following words and pronouncement in some realities. Two realities that verse 21 points us to. And the setup is leading to verses 22 and following where he's going to say, none of these who rebelled against me shall see that land. But what's the lead up to that? What does he ground that pronouncement in? How certain can they really be? God says in verse 21, truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. None of these men who have seen my glory, and he will go on and make this pronouncement. But he grounds these realities in verse 21, or grounds this pronouncement in verse 21 in these realities. His self-existence, truly, as I live. And the Lord's living depends on nothing outside himself. The Lord is the only self-existent one, reigning and sovereign and the source of all life. And as I live, declares the Lord, there's nothing higher, no greater source, no more profound life for the Lord to pronounce based upon. And so he puts his own existence in the words here, as I live, none of them will see this land. Reality number two is not just his present life, his glorious being, his self-existent nature. He gives a future promise. And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, which means that the Lord in his self-exalting and self-existent and source of all life and might and power, there is a plan the Lord will accomplish. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And he says, just as I live and just as this will be true, I will now make this pronouncement. Grounding these words in verses 22 in the glorious realities of his living being and in his future work of all the earth being filled with the glory of God. He says in verse 22, none of these men, then in verse 23, shall see the land. He characterizes these men. It would have been clear to say, none of these men shall see the land in verse 23. The land I swore to their fathers. But he describes what these people are like. These people are not hearing a pronouncement uh, in, in light of their ignorance. They have seen and heard wonders. Verse verse 22 says, none of these men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness. I mean, what are these people like? They're described as people who have an experience and an acquaintance with wonders. These are not an ignorant people. They have beheld glories of God. They have been beneficiaries of his sovereign power. 
And in Egypt and in the wilderness, having seen these things, they have yet put me to the test these ten times and not obeyed my voice. They are a people who have experienced and beheld things that they should respond with worship and obedience. Their response is not that. They have tested the Lord. They have turned from the Lord. They have disobeyed the voice of the Lord. They have grumbled against his appointed leaders. They have murmured in their fear and in their unbelief. They have resisted the Lord. They have responded to wonders by testing the Lord. They have responded to what they have beheld and experienced by ignoring his voice. When it says they put me to the test these ten times, that may just be a rhetorical phrase of saying over and over and over again. A parent might feel at an exasperated point where they'd say, I've told you ten times to do this. Now, it might not have been something they kept count of, though maybe. <laughs> Here, the rhetorical phrase the rhetorical phrase is, the, is probably what is meant. The Lord has said over and over them, over and over to them, showing the truth earlier that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But in response to wonders, they have refused to obey the Lord. In verse 23, they, these men shall not see the land I swore to their fathers. None of those who despised me shall see it. The way the Lord is describing their response is so key. Those who despised me. They will not see the promised land because these are not a people who fear and love the Lord. They do not want the land. They would rather go back. The Lord is not denying the promised land to people who want to follow God and see it. He is denying the land to those who don't want it. They don't want the Lord. They don't want the land, so they shall not have it. They will reap what they sow. They want Egypt. The bondage of Egypt is more appealing to them. So the Lord is not saying, you many Israelites who long for this land, I have decided you shall not have it. Instead, he will give the people what they think they want. In verse 23, this is the land that was sworn to their fathers, thinking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs in Genesis. They have rebelled against what they have seen, so they will not receive what they haven't seen. They've watched signs and wonders in Egypt and in the wilderness, and they have not walked by faith. They have demonstrated instead hearts of grumbling and murmuring and outrageous planning and unbelief. The Lord's pronouncement is that these rebellious wilderness Israelites shall not see it. It is the case that this is not some comprehensive every individual of Israel in view. We know that's not true. In verse 24, for example, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went. His descendants shall possess it. Caleb is one of those 12 spies. He, along with Joshua, brought a good report. And the majority rejected the Lord and many other Israelites followed in their rebellion. So those who have despised the Lord and his word, they shall not see the land the Lord has promised by that word. They don't want the words of God. And those words include a promised land, so they shall not have either. But Caleb is called here a servant, a term earlier given to Moses. A servant is the will of the master. And he says here, Caleb is my servant. 
The, the superior is Yahweh. The one who is greater in authority and power, majesty and grandeur. And Caleb loves the Lord, fears the Lord. And he's called here a servant of God. And he says of Caleb, my servant, Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully. What makes Caleb different, what makes him a servant of the Lord outwardly, that he would advocate for the words of God and that he would encourage the people of God. Let's go up at once and take the land. Why has someone served the Lord in that way? Because Caleb's inside is different than theirs. He has a different spirit. And that simply means his inner life, his heart, his affections. What drives him, what inspires him, what he longs for, what he worships. Caleb has a different spirit than the other spies who went. He has followed me fully. That's how you know Caleb has a different spirit. It's not just an internal thinking for Caleb. The internal disposition and the outward obedience go together. Faith without works is dead. Caleb has a different spirit. How do we know? Because he follows the Lord. That's how we know. How do we know the hearts of these other Israelites are wrong? Because they're rejecting the Lord. They're refusing his words. They want Egypt. That's how we know what's in their heart. Because it comes out in the fruit of their words and loves and worship and actions. And Caleb follows God. God says so. He says, I'm going to bring him into the land in which he went. He once came in as a spy. He will come back in as an heir. He will possess the land, he and his descendants. And in verse 25, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Now, I think slow and ominous music would be playing in the background of verse 25 if we were to set a track to it. Because in verse 25, the people have said... We want to go back to Egypt. And so notice the instructions. Turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness, by the way, to the Red Sea. Now, wait a second. To the Red Sea? That's earlier, right? You flip backward in the Old Testament. You go back to Exodus 12 through 14, taken out of Egypt, through the wilderness, to the Red Sea, where they are walking through parted walls of water. He, he is... He is saying, then if you want to go back, go back tomorrow. You want to go back to Egypt? You want to go back through that wilderness or head back toward the Red Sea? You want to undo the exodus? Tomorrow morning, set out that way. Don't stay here. Well, why wouldn't they stay here? He says the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in these valleys. Now, why would that be a problem? Well, it's no longer safe for them to be there. It is not safe for them to dwell there. It is not safe for them to enter the land. The Lord has pronounced a judgment. They don't want the land, and therefore the inhabitants of the land will prove too mighty for them. There is some graciousness in this directive then. Not only are the people immediately spared from physical judgment, they are told to move because of the presence of the Amalekites and the Canaanites. The judgment gets more specific in verses 26 and following. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and he says, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? This is a wide word, isn't it? Congregation makes you think of scores of people when you're thinking of the nation of Israel. It's a lot of Israelites. That's not just like a handful. We're thinking about a, a massive rebellion among the Israelites. How long shall this wicked, the, the adjective there, 
Doesn't that, this is just drop your jaw. This wicked congregation, it's like, wait, is he talking about the Ammonites or the Canaanites or the Israelites? They're the the ones in view. They grumble against me and how long shall they? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, in verse 28, as I live, there it is again. They can be as certain of this pronouncement as God is of his self-existent life and being. As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. Now, what do you mean in my hearing? What what does that language come from? Chapter 14, verse 2, the whole congregation said, would that we died in this wilderness. And the Lord said, that's what you want, is it? You want to die in the wilderness. You want to go back to Egypt. Then tomorrow morning start heading back to Egypt and you will die in this wilderness. Your dead bodies in verse 29 shall fall in the wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore I would make you dwell. Except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Those are the spies among the twelve that made a good report. Now, Joshua and Caleb are of those who are 20 years old and upward. And in that group, Joshua and Caleb will go and the rebellious spies and those who have despised the Lord among the wicked congregation, they are denied entrance into the land. That language of census makes you think of what Numbers is known for. It is called Numbers. And a census appears in Numbers 1 where warriors are counted for the conquest. There are two major censuses in Numbers that deal with warriors. One is in Numbers 1. That's what this chapter is talking about. There is a second one. The second one occurs in Numbers 26. Why is there a second one? Because the people in Numbers 1 are not alive in Numbers 26. They've died out over the 40-year period. You need a new census. A new census of warriors who had grown up now in the land and who did not despise the Lord and did not reject his promises, but will go in and inherit it. In verse 31, but your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring them in. They shall know the land you have rejected. God's words there describing what the people are doing is that they have said, you believe your children will become a prey. That's an act of unbelief when the Lord said, I'm going to give you the land. By saying, well, I just don't think, I think these uh, warriors are going to overcome our families and our wives, our children are going to kill them. And and that that puts them in a crossroads. Are they going to go with their fear or are they going to respond in faith to what God has clearly said? I will give you the land. And they say, I don't think you will. I don't think you can. I don't think with the might and the height of these people. He says, they shall know the land you have rejected. By rejecting the words of the Lord and saying, let's go back to Egypt. They are refusing the covenant promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're refusing the promised land that is spoken of to the patriarchs. And in verse 32, but as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. It's reiterating there the 40-year judgment of God. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. The imagery of a shepherd is quite appropriate because shepherds go here and they go there and they're looking for pasture for their sheep. And he says, your your children are going to be that way. They're going to be staying still, which is where the, the term wandering with the wilderness generation comes from. The wandering or wilderness generation moving about. Never, never in one place in a, in a more long-term way. 
but rather moving around like shepherds in the wilderness. And not just for a few weeks or months, but for years and decades. It turns out that there are consequences that that generation will face that will implicate even their children time-wise. Here, these, this widespread wickedness of the congregation that's addressed and rebuked by the Lord, it says that your children will experience a fallout scenario due to your faithlessness. Due to your faithlessness, they will be wandering. We're not sending them in until they are ready to go into the land. They're but children. So they will now not inherit the land right now because of you. It will be 40 years. 40 years. In verse 34, he explains why the 40. It's not randomly chosen. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day you will bear your iniquity, 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In the wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Now what's the rationale? The rationale that he explains there is the amount of time the spies spied it out. 40 days translates proportionally one year for each day, a 40-year judgment, you shall bear your iniquity. You might say, well, wait, in verse 20, the Lord said to Moses, I have pardoned you according to your word. How is it that they bear their iniquity? The pardoning is their not immediate being judged and destroyed. The Lord preserves their life. In that sense, they are spared as Moses had pled for the Lord to, to grant that kind of pardon. But that does not mean that in their sparing, being spared from destruction that they will not face serious consequences in these 40 years that follow. And therefore, this pronouncement is indeed the word of God of this, the Israelites bearing their iniquity. Or in other words, they have rebelled against the Lord. And they might think, I want to rebel against the Lord and not face any consequences. Well, friend, that's not the world we live in. The world God has made is that sin harms you and the people around you. And that these faithless Israelites have decisions that they have made in a, being against the Lord that are now going to impact the generation coming up. Your decisions against the Lord don't just affect you. But sin makes us stupid and selfish and makes us deluded thinking I can sow one thing and reap another. And this, this word and pronouncement of the Lord is saying to us, these people will bear the penalties and consequences of turning against the Lord. That is not some small thing. He calls them wicked. A wicked generation gathered together against me. That's just alarming language. Alarming language. This wicked generation will die in the wilderness for they have been disinherited. And they've been disinherited because they have rejected the promised land and disbelieved the Lord. Well, that's a, that's a strong word. What's the aftermath of this? Two scenes of aftermath. Two scenes of aftermath. First, a judgment on the unbelieving spies. Look with me in verses 36 to 38. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, those men, the men who brought up a bad report of the land, died by a plague before the Lord. There are Old Testament writers who have said, this foreshadows, doesn't it? 
what will happen over a 40 year period. Here is an immediate judgment of the Lord on 10 spies. They are dead. And their bodies dropping in that wilderness on that day anticipate what will be true for the wicked in the decades to come. Those who reject the Lord and have said, oh, would that we had died in this wilderness. They will die in that wilderness. And you know who else said, oh, that we had died in this wilderness? Those spies. And you know what happened? They did. They did. Verse 36 and 37 says they did. And they died by a plague before the Lord. That's an interesting word. It's the same word used in the book of Exodus for judgments on Egypt. Oh, yes, so their hearts were so drawn to Egypt. But Egypt experienced the judgment of God, didn't it? Judgments and plagues upon Pharaoh and his ruthless taskmasters who refused to release the Israelites. And these people who longed for Egypt received judgment like Egypt did. A plague before the Lord. In verse 38, of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. And that's because they believed the Lord. In verse 18, we saw that Moses had reiterated what was true. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty and visiting iniquity on the fathers and on the children. The passage that we have read is an example of the Lord being slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, calling for people to respond rightly to his words, and yet in his righteousness and his holy judgment takes sin seriously. And they have tested the Lord and tested the Lord and tested the Lord and tested the Lord and tested the Lord. They have refused him. It is clear that in the trajectory of their hearts and the patterns of their lives, they do not want to follow the Lord. And so they face judgment. And they have wanted to die in the wilderness. And so they and those who are of like-mindedness, they shall die in the wilderness. There is another scene. The first scene of aftermath was the judgment of those ten spies. And in verses 39 to 45, a defeat of Israelites. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. Now, earlier in chapter 14, the spies say that we can't take the land and there's a whole loud cry and the people weep into the night in chapter 14. One, they are undone. Let's go back to Egypt. So they are mourning greatly in Numbers 13 and 14. And it's not for a good reason. But here, they are overwhelmed by the words of pronounced judgment and no doubt deeply disturbed by 10 people whose bodies are on the ground. And they say in verse 39, in their great, they are mourning greatly after hearing all of these words. In verse 40, they rose early in the morning. Now, we have been told earlier, verse 25, tomorrow morning, get up, go back this way toward the Red Sea, because in these valleys, the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell. All right, well, let's see how they do. Verse 40. They rose early in the morning and they went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised for we have sinned. What's in their thinking here? Their thinking is, okay, it's the next day. 
let's go into the promised land. Boy, because when, when we responded to the Lord and then he responded with his pronounced judgment, things did not go well. We sinned against the Lord. So, so we're going to try to make things right. Okay, so here's this promised land before us. Here's the hill country on the other side of the desert in the southern border. We're going to go. Here we are. We're going to go to the place the Lord has promised. For we had, we had sinned. And that's why all of this pronouncement was happening. So they rise that morning and they do not set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea as the Lord had said. They go up to the heights of the hill country and they did not go where he told them. And they said, here we are, we're going to go up to the place the Lord has promised. They're going to do what he told them they now will not do. I think we're looking at a people who are trying to make a very broken situation better. Just imagine while a parent is out of the house coming home and seeing a very expensive vase sitting back on the shelf. But it looks different from when you left it. It's covered with scotch tape or duct tape and there's Elmer's glue sticking out the sides. You're just like, all right, I'm going to have to have the story behind this. Why does this look this way? And it's like, well, while you were out of the house, I completely broke it. It is shattered everywhere. And I, I thought, oh, I can fix this. <laughs> so I'm just going to try to put it back together. And what you're looking for, looking at in verse 40, are the, the foolish decisions of Israelites who are saying, we can fix what we broke. We can do it. The Lord's made this pronouncement and, and we rejected him, but okay, let's, let's come back together. We can mend this. We can make this right. Moses says in verse 41, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? He calls them out on it, doesn't he? They need to hear the blunt truth about what they're doing. He asks them a question. Why are you now transgressing the command of the Lord? You would think that at this point, those who had any spiritual sense in their minds and hearts would say whatever the Lord says and however the Lord says it and whenever the Lord says it, we will obey. And what do these people do? The very next morning, it's not even been 12 hours. It's the next morning and they're rebelling against the Lord's commandment because he didn't give them a suggestion. I'm gonna give you a list of options to consider Maybe returning by the way of the Red Sea, but you know, you might have other plans. No, he says, go back through the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And they don't. They once again transgress the command of the Lord. And Moses, in the last part of verse 41, says, why are you doing this when it will not succeed? Now, that was a clear, blunt expectation they should have. Moses, the appointed leader of the Lord and the mouthpiece for Israel, is saying to us, our plans, our foolish plans, trying to mend this situation when the Lord has already pronounced judgment, this going into the land will not go well for us. We're being told it will not succeed. He says to them in verse 42, do not go up for the Lord is not among you. Now, if there's anything to weep over, it's that. For the Lord is not among you. Warning at the end of verse 42, lest you be struck down before your enemies. Now, Caleb had said earlier in Numbers 14, or at the end of Numbers 13, rather, um, let's go up at once and occupy it. And now they are being told, do not go up. The Lord is not among you, lest you be destroyed by your enemies. That's the warning. The lack of divine protection. 
Caleb's zeal was explained later in verse 9 when he told them, don't fear the people of the land. They're bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Don't fear them. Now a lot's happened since Caleb said those words in chapter 14, 9. And now Moses says, do not go up. The Lord is not among you. You will be struck down before your enemies. Earlier, Caleb had said their protection has been removed. Now the Israelites' protection has been removed. In verse 43, Moses says, For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you. You shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. In other words, there is no taking the land without following the Lord. There is no entering the inheritance of what is to come without a heart that fears God. And they don't fear God. Another exhibit as evidence for the case. Another commandment is given. What do they do? Ignore God's commandment to then go do what they think would be best in their reasoning. Folly on display. Moses says to the Israelites, the Lord is not with you in this venture. Do not go. You will fall by the sword. Moses has warned them. God has spoken. Consequences have been spelled out. He has said to them, this is what is going to happen. Verse 44, but they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country. In absolute defiance of the divine pronouncement and the judgments of destruction. The warnings that Moses had given They do not heed the word of God. It just goes right over their head. In one ear and out the other. Pick your expression. It's like they're they're there. People have said these things to them. They have pled with them not to turn from the Lord and and not to defy his words. But they defy his words again. They go to the hill country. Verse 44 tells us their circumstances. Because what you should not imagine is that the people engaged in a widespread march of tribes and tabernacle demolition, or not demolition, that sounds too strong, but uh, pulling pulling it apart and, and rightly organizing it and ready to put it in, and then with the Ark of the Covenant at the front, that is not what we read here. Verse 44 says, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. This is awkward. Some people are leaving, some people are staying. That's not how this is supposed to go. And they're only to go when the cloud and fire move from over the tabernacle. When the ark of God will lead the people. That is not happening here. But you know what they do? They go anyway. They do what they think is best despite the clear words of God and the warnings of judgment. They think they know better than God. They presumed. Their reasoning distorted and deluded. They go where God told them they must not go to do what God said they will not now do. And in verse 45, the result is predictable. No one is surprised when you get to verse 45, given what we've been told and warned about, right? Verse 45 says, Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. The word Hormah is a town that means destruction. Very ironic. Because these people are defeated and routed to a place named destruction. Not victory. That's not the name of that place. But the Israelites go there and it further symbolizes in that very location what they've just gone through as a rebellious people. They've been defeated by their enemies. It shouldn't happen this way, right? But they've defied the directives of God. 
He's not been unclear. The words of Moses have been repeated over and over again. And the plea from Aaron and the others to the people to come before God with contrite hearts and responding in faith to the words of God. In Psalm 95, the wilderness generation is described as testing God at every point. So later, in other words, when the psalmist writes about this earlier generation, nobody forgot how much they tested the Lord. They were known for it. It was their reputation. The wilderness generation that rejected the Lord. The Lord said of them in Psalm 95.10, They are a people who go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. That's the people we're reading about. Why did they think they can presume to go into the hill country and defeat the Amalekites without the ark, the mediator Moses, or any sanction of the Lord, and to defy his divine pronouncement? Because in, verse, in uh, Psalm 95, verse 10, they go astray in their heart and they've not known his ways. The knowledge wasn't in here. It wasn't in their heart. They live out what they believe, and they don't believe the words of God. In Hebrews 3, the writer of the New Testament reflects on this generation. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 316, he says, Who were those that heard and yet rebelled? Wasn't it all those who left Egypt led by Moses? With whom was God provoked for 40 years? The writer says, wasn't it those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see, the writer says, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That's why they don't overcome the Amalekites. That's why there's no allotment for them. That's why in the end they will die under the judgment of God. Because in their hearts they don't believe him. And Hebrews 4 exhorts us because the wilderness generation exists in the scriptures, not just to warn the Old Testament Israelites that followed. In Hebrews 4, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, and we don't think here about just a geographical territory that was known then as Canaan, we think about a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, We think about all things new in Revelation 21 and 22. This is the promise of entering his rest. And we're told, therefore, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. He says to his readers, for good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message they heard didn't benefit them because they weren't united by faith with those who listened. And we are a people Dear friends, that we are heading toward a land of promise. And we are the gospel people, and we have beheld the wonders and glories in the gospels about the cross, which is greater than plagues in Egypt and walls of water at a Red Sea. Jesus said, It is finished. And we follow one who is greater than Joshua and Caleb. We follow the Lord Jesus who has defeated our sin. And friend, if you are wondering, by looking backward, whether it's better for you in Egypt, the word of God to you in numbers, and in many places outside of it, it was never better in our bondage to iniquity. It is not better. No matter what allures, no matter what draws, no matter what indwelling sinner temptations seem to direct our focus backward, it was not better in Egypt. Christ is better. 
He has set us free from the chains of sin and from the penalty of condemnation. We are justified in Christ by grace alone and through faith in him. We have heard the message of good news. Believers receive that message with the empty hands of faith because we know that we in our hearts and apart from Christ have gone astray. We have sought our own way. We have thought we know what is best and God in his mercy has sent his son to us. The wilderness generation was characterized by unbelief and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes about them. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, Our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They ate the same food. They drank the same drink. In verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then he says to us, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We have to think about our hearts and wonder, what is it that I long for? What is it that I believe about God and his word? And does my heart look at life apart from Christ and think it would be better there, wouldn't it? The church of Christ is truly characterized by faith, hope, and love. And as surely as the Lord lives, and as surely as the earth will be filled with his glory, we will not turn from him. We go forward in faith for the glory of God.